Let's go. I sell products, not advertising. This monkey business is in your blood, under your skin. You're getting out, you're just getting in, you're only getting started. People will think what I tell them to think. Oh, have I got your attention now? You have part of my attention, you have the minimum amount. This guy's got the right idea. Why don't we begin? Target locked and ready. Bombs away! visual on target all right so welcome back to another episode of built the scale with me your host mitch fanning joining me today is shiv narayanan ceo of how to SaaS, a consulting firm that works with private equity firms and their portfolio companies to help them scale their marketing and growth shiv how are you doing today hey mitch thanks for having me on excited to be here uh, listen i've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while and you know we met we met uh, kind of a now I think at least a year and a half now back uh, when you were at uh, Wild Apricot. Uh, we kind of met through Dimitri, uh, the original founder, the co-founders, and uh, yeah. So I've been looking forward to actually sitting down with you and having this type of conversation. So I appreciate it. Um, yeah, likewise. I, I think we're going to cover a lot of ground in such a short period of time. But before we kind of get into it, um, how did you make your way into the world of marketing and and, and, you know, why did you decide to start how to SaaS? Yeah, so I started off, well, actually, if I go back to the beginning, I, I graduated from business school back in 2010, and I graduated without a job. Um, I went to a really good business school in Toronto called Schulich, and so the expectation was to get into one of the bigger firms in Toronto, and that just didn't end up happening for me. Um, and so I ended up working a minimum wage job in a FedEx warehouse, um, for my first year out of, out of school, um, and learned some hard lessons along the way and eventually ended up finding the world of internet marketing. Uh, this was the earlier days of internet marketing where you had these long form sales pages for information products or supplements and things like that, that you were selling online. I remember and those. So I, yeah. And they're, they're still out there. Even today, you can find them. Um, but I started off as a copywriter. Um, that was something that I was fairly good at. Um, uh, and so I found a bunch of projects to work on and wrote these long form copywriting pages. And so that was my first foray into marketing. Yeah, eventually started working with startups. And because the in, in some ways, the internet marketing world was way ahead of the tech world. Uh, when you think about direct response marketing in particular, uh, the tech world is catching up now, but internet marketing forever had figured out, you know, CPAs and uh, return on ad spend and things like that, that just don't, didn't exist in the tech world or pe most people didn't think about it till more recently. And so that gave me a bit of a leg up, uh, eventually found Wild Apricot after working at another startup for a while. And when I came in, uh, I was brought in as um, uh, the first marketing hire. The previous marketing regime had been transitioned out. And so I eventually ended up taking over as a CMO of Wild Apricot. And the, bringing the direct response aspect from the internet marketing world really helped Wild Apricot. It was a kind of product that had a large market and you could leverage a lot of those principles. And this is 2014, right? Like now you hear about buzzwords like sure. product-led led growth and self-serve you know, acquisition and things like that. What Wild Apricot at the time, it was Wild Apricot, Shopify, and FreshBooks in Toronto. Those were the three companies that were doing it right. Um, and so I built that engine for Wild Apricot. And uh, through that journey, we um, built Wild Apricot to about 20 million 
in any recurring revenue. And we did that without a salesperson. So entirely Amazing. digital inbound content, SEO driven uh, and product led growth. And that company got acquired in 2017 uh, by private equity. And so going through that journey, I identified that the tech world even still is so behind. In fact, um, I think McKinsey does like a digital quotient uh, of industries and most B2B tech companies are considered digital laggards. Whereas if you think about like an e-commerce company, they have to go, like if you have a Shopify store, even the first way you go to market is with Facebook ads, but B2B SaaS companies or tech enabled services or all kinds in all kinds of verticals and industries, they're going to market with sales. They're built on sales. They have large enterprise sales teams with BDRs, SDRs, account executives. And so when they can, you could theoretically as a B2B company grow to hundred million in revenue. And we have some clients that are north of hundred million that just don't have the maturity on the digital acquisition side. And so that's what we work with. We partner with private equity investors that are investing in these large uh, companies and we help them become more mature to capture the value that's sitting right there in front of them because they're usually market leaders and they have the budget to be able to spend on these things, but they just haven't been able to get there because they don't know how. Um, and so that's the genesis of the how to SaaS consulting firm. It's interesting, uh, you, you know, the whole idea that, um, you know, kind of the, the B2B world uh, looks to the B2C world uh, and usually the, the, the B2C world is usually a little bit of a he- ahead of, you know, when it comes to, say, certain, certain marketing uh, approaches, uh, in this case, uh, DR, direct response. Uh, in my case, uh, you know, we're, you know, the company, uh, RenSync, they're in prop tech and they work in, and I was saying before we, we jumped on in multifamily. So we work with multifamily operators and I've noticed that, um, they're starting to adopt the, these property management firms and these, uh, these multifamily companies, they're starting to adopt some of the, um, best practices of B2B and they're, mm-hmm. they're light years behind. So it's interesting how you see those trends and, and, and one area kind of takes on uh, from another area and, and I feel like I've almost gone back in time in some cases uh, to see. It's, it's interesting. A lot of things they're doing are things that the B2B marketers did uh, years ago uh, when it comes to getting renters. Right. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. Now, you obviously work with uh, private equity firms and their portfolio companies like you'd mentioned. And, you know, when we talk about patterns, um, you know, there's got to be a few patterns that you're seeing, uh, you know, are there, are there any that you can kind of speak of as far as like, you know, what these companies, where they are, the maturity, you know, what, what's going on, what's not working. Um, can you kind of speak to that? Yeah. I, I think it touches on something you just shared where some of the companies are now adopting things that B2B companies have figured out, which is that, um, the best growth people that I know are, have like a multidimensional, multidisciplinary approach to growth. Um, And so in terms of patterns, you're seeing the best companies leverage the best of the B2C world. So where you think about go to market, think about content uh, acquisition, um, using product led growth as a pattern where you have these super easy to use products being built that a customer can get onboarded on in at light speed, you know, without needing a handholding engagement of a professional services person that you kind of have to get onboarded by. And then if something breaks, you kind of have to go and go back to 
pay more for services and then have like a maintenance contract to have a specific number of hours that you get per month to, to maintain your instance. Uh, and then combining it with the best of the B2B world where you have account-based marketing, where you define your 200 or 10,000 ideal clients and you have their account names and the contacts that work there and you're building customized campaigns for those people and really targeting them. Uh, for example, we we have a list of every private equity firm mapped globally, uh, North America, Europe, uh, Middle East, APAC, Australia, New Zealand. We know every private equity firm. We know the size of their portfolio. We know how much money that they have uh, at their disposal uh, disposal to invest into acquiring portfolio companies. So we know who we're going after. And at the same time, we're running LinkedIn ads and we're doing content marketing and thought leadership. And so it's the best of both worlds, right? And so the really bringing all of that together is the modern go-to-market organization. Uh, and the types of people that you need to run those organizations need to be different as well. If you are a marketer well-versed in brand and PR and comms and trade shows, that's great. But if you lack the data and the and the paid media and the content expertise, you can't be the leader of a large global company any any longer. Um, and that, that gap is very evident in a lot of these companies where you have traditional marketers or revenue leaders re- leading the entire function and they just don't have the right understanding of what it would take to take that company to to the next level. What if it's doing a hundred million? Like how do you grow to a billion dollars? The only way to do that is to leverage the best of both worlds. So, um, and the the companies that we work with that have the most success have that culture ingrained, um, not just within marketing, but in terms of how sales perceives marketing and how much of a how how much product prioritizes certain things to improve the user experience and and connect with marketing and sales and working together and marketing also looks at itself as a revenue driver and works with sales right so it's a entire culture shift in terms of how you approach growth for these businesses no there's no question and um, you bring up a good point you know as a marketer specifically a marketing leader you know it's important to continually learn and really in some cases fail. Uh, uh, you know, and so, you know, speaking of, of that, you know, I know that, and I think I, I listened to one of the, one of the podcasts you were on, this might've been years ago, but I, what's interesting is that because you've had so much success at Wild Apricot, I remember specifically you saying, um, there was a time where there was a bit of a struggle. Um, and, and so you know, you, so you, you, you came in, there was a, another marketing regime that you, you know, you mentioned, you came in, you helped grow, but there was a, was there anything at Wild Apricot that was a, seemed at the time like a failure, but you eventually was able to turn that into a success? <laughs> there were so many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because what, how does SAS is it's, it's, it's my, it's a business founded on my hero's journey through Wild Apricot because when I first took over as the marketing leader of that business, I would say I had no business being the marketing leader of that business. Like it was nice to have the title and you can kind of put it on LinkedIn and um, make it seem like you know what you're doing. Um, but the first couple of years, I was really trying to find my feet underneath me. And initially we had some success because there's some quick wins you can implement in terms of tactical place. Right. And we were able to do that. But then when you get to like 
the next level. Cause it's like, now what, now that you've done this, like what's next for this business? That's when I really started to stumble for a while. Um, and so how does SAS is like my, a business where it's, it's like I've made all of these mistakes. And now when I post things on LinkedIn or whatever, everything seems so airtight and people have mentioned that to me, but really it's from making so many mistakes that I now understand. I can kind of see the matrix in terms of how to look at a company or how to figure out what a company is about. Right. So you, the, the essence in, in whenever you fail a lot, it's uh, with, with businesses, it's the, you're trying to figure out what is this business? Like how will this business specifically succeed? And so with wild apricot, when I first came in, one of the, the previous startups that I had worked at, it was built entirely on business development. So we had six BDRs and two AEs and it was a smaller company. It was doing like one or 2 million in revenue, but there would be like 200 emails sent out kind of like, you know how you get these like spammy LinkedIn messages. Oh yeah. Well, we were, we were doing it at a time when even fewer people were doing it uh, back then. So <laughs> it actually worked. And uh, we generated a bunch of leads for that business doing outbound business development that way. The only difference was that the deal sizes were larger. Yeah. So when I came into Wild Apricot, um, I one of the first bets I made was starting to build out a business development function. And I hired a bunch of people. I hired a very expensive sales leader to be part of my team who had a lot of experience. And I learned over time that that was the wrong play for this business. I had actually gone to Saster uh, before Saster became big. It was like there were 500 people there and they were pitching the predictable revenue model where you have BDRs dialing yep. out, setting appointments for AEs. And that was how you grew SaaS, SaaS companies at that time. And so I really ended up buying into that. We ended up hiring these people and they were trying to, you know, set appointments and our average deal size was a thousand dollars. And yeah. <laughs> you you're, you're underwater at that point, right? Yeah. If you have a sales rep, that that's getting paid, let's say sixty thousand or something a year. That means that person has to close sixty deals for you to break even on their time. If you have four of those people, they have to close two hundred and forty with outbound. I can do that with inbound all day on Wild Apricot. I cannot do that with outbound. And so that was a very painful lesson because you make a bet and a company invests a lot of money. If it doesn't work, you know you can even get fired if you're the CMO of a company and you make that critical of an error on your yearly projections are, are tied to that. And I came close to getting fired multiple times at Wild Apricot, I would say. Um, and so through that journey, I and, and I didn't because we had a very patient CEO and Dimitri and um, him and I have a great relationship and he was able to, you know, be patient enough to let us make some of those mistakes and make adjustments. And what came out of that was Dimitri and I, we built a strategy or strategic pillars for what Wild Apricot you know, what strategy for that business was. So as an example, like if you look at a company like Ikea, um, they, every, like everybody knows Ikea, but one, one of the things that's most annoying about Ikea furniture is you have to assemble it yourself and they give you the stupid Allen keys that you have to assemble the furniture with. <laughs> but there's a, there's a very strategic reason why, which is Ikea is primarily a self-serve furniture company. When you go into the store, you can barely see a sales associate you walk through the thing by yourself, you go pick up the thing, put it into the cart by yourself, you load it into your car by yourself, and then you get to your house and you have to assemble it by yourself. Even if you don't have a drill, you have one Allen key that you can use that can assemble any piece of furniture that you've bought from there, right? And so what that lets them do is it's 
first of all, the design, the way the product has to be designed has to be easy to assemble. That lets them price it much lower. You have It has to be small enough so that you can transport it in your own vehicle. And I can start going down the list and you're like, oh, right, this, this is all strategically connected together. And that's how IKEA is able to be the largest furniture manufacturer in the world, right? And so for Wild Apricot, if we started building the strategic pillars and we're like, oh, we need to be, we have a low price point, so similar to IKEA in that way. Therefore, we need to be self-serve. Therefore, we need to have more product-led growth and more, we need to cast a wider net. And the way you cast a wider net for acquisition is with marketing, not with sales. So we didn't end up hiring salespeople. And so as you start to go down that checklist, the strategy becomes obvious. And what I'm describing right now, it seems cleaner, but it took us, or at least it took me two and a half years to understand that. And as soon as we understood that, like all the investments that we made in terms of growth, all the prioritization, what we pitched when we sold the company, everything aligned with that. And that story like brings the whole organization into like alignment in terms of how everybody operates, right? Um, and now it's obvious, like, yeah, Wild Africa shouldn't have salespeople. Uh, like, <laughs> it's like, it almost sounds silly to think that I actually did, did that at the time, right? So um, I, th- I think that's the, that's the benefit of having the, the freedom to kind of experiment and, and figure things out, right? And so I, I, I wish more businesses did that. And with a lot of businesses now, it's like, it's more obvious to me. And I think there have been a lot more other failures that other people have shared that it becomes clearer in terms of what your strategic pillars should be, right? And then you kind of build the business around that. It's, you know, there's so much, there's so much there that I want to unpack. Um, first, one of the things that I always get to the bottom of is pricing um, as, a, as a marketing leader because pricing really dictates your go-to-market. Um, I feel uh, that's at least one of the things that I believe. Um, mm-hmm. Normally, you know, in, in my view, and it's very simplistic, and I'm, I know there's different layers, but I tend to think any anything any ACV that's over ten, you probably need some sales, depending on what the product looks like. If it's not product first, if there needs to be some uh, sales motion to kind of get them started, uh, anything under ten, definitely under under six to eight. Uh, you, you definitely can, you know, the, the unit economics start to dictate, you probably can do inbound. It's probably more efficient. Um, again, I'm using very simplistic terms, but having mm-hmm. even that conversation, deciding what your go to market and that mix is, I find, um, as probably you do, a lot of marketers don't even, they don't even have a, a, a seat at the table with pricing. Uh, or don't, don't even realize that that's kind of the first way to kind of think about it. Um, and right. the other thing that you'd mentioned, having that relationship with your CEO, and I know that it sounds like cliche and you see it all the time on LinkedIn, you know, alignment, but really being able to talk about business um, with, with, your, with your CEO and having that good relationship, um, it, it's imperative uh, you know, even before we got on the call, I was talking with, uh, with my CEO about business matters. Um, I wasn't talking to him about, you know, traffic or any of those. It was business matters and having business discussions. And then how, how do we actually apply that in terms of how to, you know, what's our go to market? What's our marketing strategy? Um, I can't, I can't stress that enough. Uh, it's, it's, it's critical. And, and I know Dimitri 
uh, definitely, you know, is a, is a, a, a good, good guy in that respect. I don't know him as well from a business perspective as you do, but I, I can definitely see him, uh, you know, I, I, that definitely sounds like Dimitri, uh, for sure. Um, yeah, no, he was great. And, and one of the key learnings just to riff on that is, um, a big mistake that marketers make, uh, especially when they're inexperienced is they think everything that they do has to work to validate their value. Um, and so this is why a lot of times you'll see in meetings that marketers will get defensive about a specific campaign they ran or sales or product teams will be, will ask a question about the validity or value of something that marketing has done. And they probably would be right if sales says, Hey, uh, the lead you sent me isn't good. I, I tend to lean more on sales than the marketing person there. Um, but marketing will go out of their way to try to justify that it was valuable. The, the big shift that, or mental shift that needs to happen there is not thinking of your value as I need to get the campaign right uh, or this initiative right to this is a business problem. The business problem is we need to grow and marketing is fulfilling a very important piece of that. And part of figuring out how to make the business grow is trying things that will fail, but then that tells you which direction not to go in. And knowing that it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like having a map or like in a video game where you're, you're exploring in one direction and you hit a wall and that tells you, oh, don't go in that direction anymore. Go in a different direction. That is of insane value to a company because forever a company might think, oh, we could always do this. We could always do referrals uh, from partners or we could always go to trade shows or we could, you know, you can open up all kinds of, we could do PR. And when you go in that direction, you've removed that. Now you bring focus back to the organization and focus is infinitely valuable, right? So um, that's that change when you, when, you, when you change the narrative there, then you can go to your CEO and build a different type of relationship where you're not trying to validate your salary or the investment the organization is making in you by just success, but by the problems that you're solving for the organization and figuring out where or how you're going to grow the company. And then you become more of a partner to the CEO because that's exactly what the CEO is trying to do, right? And the CEO will trust a CMO that is fully aligned on that objective more so than one that's just trying to validate, you know, the investment that you're making in them. Yeah. I mean, we're going through this a little bit at RentSync. Um, we're, and, and this is another thing I always think about. There's always things that you see on LinkedIn and it's really meant for late stage, um, not necessarily early stage. Cause I find with early stage and I, I define early stage from, for myself, probably between one to 10, um, million ARR, mm -hmm. um, you find a lot of times, especially when, when it's a go-to-market that has sales, uh, a lot of the things that you need to do are, are process-oriented, putting the right people in place. Uh, it's not about technology or strategy or anything like that. And, and also, it, it's, it's some of the data, like it, there's no really benchmarks to go off of. And kind of where I'm, where I'm going with this is I always find that... Um, you almost have to, as a marketer, initially getting into those situations when you're starting to stand up reporting and numbers, you have to admit that sometimes you're using flawed data or sometimes these things, this didn't work. But if you have the reason why and what you're going to do next, you know, you know, in other words, if you're coming to a board meeting using flawed deal amounts, 
from your CRM when everyone knows that that's not the right amount, specifically your VP of sales. If you if you have a sales function, then you know you're you're kind of <laughs> you're starting off on the wrong foot. Um, Absolutely. Which kind of remi- brings me to my next point. You know, why aren't more CMOs on boards? And maybe as a follow up, you know, some advice if you do get the opportunity to how you know how should one go about presenting to a board? Yeah, um, well, I think more CMOs are starting to become involved at the board meeting level. Um, but a big problem again, it's that cultural shift that we discussed at the top of the podcast, which is um, a lot of organizations are sales led, and so. If you have a director of marketing um, and or a VP of marketing, usually they'll report to uh, the CRO or, or if it's a director of marketing, sometimes they'll report to the VP of sales in a sales-led organization. Um, and so when it comes time to have that accountability conversation with the board, you end up sending the person who's in the highest leadership position there. I don't think a lot of B2B companies have a true CMO. They may have somebody who has that title of like VP of marketing or, or something like that. But a true CMO is accountable for revenue and accountable to the board. Um, and they're structured, they have an organization structured that way. And so I think that's, that's the shift. Um, and it's changing now because even sales-led organizations are starting to lean towards marketing. And inevitably, then marketing needs to be splintered away from that sales org structure into its own org structure. And the CMO needs to report directly to the CEO. Uh, And it's even more important when you think about brand, Um, the CEO, like the CMO is responsible for branding efforts, let's say, but ultimately the CEO owns the brand. And so for the person doing branding efforts to report to the VP of sales and be one degree removed from the, from the CEO who's ultimately responsible for creating the brand in the marketplace is insane. And so that's why you need, like a company needs to have that marketing leader as you kind of go through your different stages of maturity. And then as you introduced, as you introduce revenue accountability for that function, where uh, there's a crazy stat from Gartner, which is like 12% of CMOs cite brand awareness as their KPI only 7% site ROI and only 1% site site LTV. That means more CMOs are reporting on brand awareness metrics than ROI and LTV, which LTV is what drives the business more than anything else, right? And so as that revenue accountability changes and the CMO's work and budget is being tied to revenue, then that reporting to the board and being being present there changes as well. Um, and so really that culture piece needs to change. And the person who's most capable of changing that culture is, is the CEO. Um, and c- there are CEOs who get marketing and CEOs who don't get marketing. And if you're working in an organization led by a CEO who doesn't understand marketing, you're likely going to be stuck in a sales-led function or reporting to a CRO of some kind. And my advice to marketers trying to always ask, like, like in terms of career direction, is one of the best things you can do for your career is join an organization that understands marketing or prioritizes it. That's the only way to move forward and get put into situations where you can level up and contribute at a higher level. And presenting to boards is just one example of that. So, you know, it, again, it's... It's something that I think is a 
continuous or it's always on my mind anyways uh to always have those conversations with uh with your ceo um you know not the not the kind of go off script or put you on the spot but how how do you typically um how do you typically uh kind of communicate what marketing is uh to a to a ceo like how 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 do you would you even start to define it? I mean, I have my own kind of version of it, but you know, what's how do you kind of define it? Well, I don't I don't know I don't know if I can formulate it into one specific sentence, but marketing is a key part of the growth engine. So, if you think about it from a CEO's perspective or just a business perspective, there are three major levers or four major levers. There's sales, there's product, there's marketing, and you can say. Client success is the fourth one, um, which is kind of ingrained in all three of those in many ways. And so marketing is a key player there. In if in a traditional function, marketing's role is looked at as a, as a, a <clears throat> excuse me, as a supporting cast member to the to sales and product. So if it's a product-led organization, many times marketing will be relegated to being a product marketing function instead of a, just a marketing function. If it's a sales-led organization, marketing will be relegated to being a sales enablement function. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want either of those things. You want marketing to be, marketing is a revenue driver. And when you define it as that, then everything underneath that becomes a open-ended question in terms of how can marketing influence revenue? Well, marketing can help you generate more demand or increase customer acquisition. Yes, marketing can better enable the sales team. Very important. Marketing can promote whatever the product can do. So that's product marketing, super important. Marketing can help expand existing accounts. So that's customer marketing. Uh, Marketing can help you figure out the right price for your customers, super important. Marketing can help you uh, figure out additional products or services because they understand the market, they're interfacing with the market. Um, and so it almost becomes like a product management function. Marketing can be a, uh, a mergers and acquisitions driver because based on all the competition out there or add-ons or bolt-ons that your company can have, they can help you find potential targets to acquire. So like, you know, you keep going down that list, there's like eight to 10 things that marketing can do to create enterprise value and in most organizations, marketing is limited to being one of them. And when you when you get that reductive about it, you kind of miss the forest for the trees, right? And and most marketing leaders, they also become siloed into one of those functions because you start off as a specialist or become a manager of like demand gen or sales enablement or whatever it is. But because you don't understand all those other pillars you're never able to get to CMO or even if you get to CMO, you're not a good one at the very least. So that's the key. Like I think understanding how marketing and all those dots connect to each other is, is critical. No, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's very much kind of, as you were talking very much like the um, product management function, it can always vary depending on the business you're in for sure. Um, You know, when it comes to, I kind of want to circle back uh, we we're talking a little bit about alignment and um, and just you know having um, board involvement. Um, and, you know, in one of your recent LinkedIn uh, posts, you you talked about you know the the alignment with the CFO and um, and and why that's critical. Like so, and, and almost to to give you a bit of a leeway here, we talk about. Um, you know, LTV being important 
And really, that's that's only one reason why you need to be having these conversations with your CFO to unlock that that metric. What are some other reasons why it's so important? Um, yes, great question. So, um, a bunch of the things that we just went through in the list of what marketing is responsible for. The one that we didn't mention is the connection to finance. And if you ask, if you pull most marketing leaders and ask them how much time they've spent looking at a PNL statement, a balance sheet, or a cash flow statement, or their financial projections, I can guarantee 95 or 99% of them will not have spent more than an hour in the last month looking at it. And that is that is just crazy because the entire business sits within those statements. And that's what the board sees. That's what the CFO is looking at. That's what the CEO is accountable for. And that's what really determines where you're able to invest money. So for example, uh, one of the most important metrics on a PNL is the EBITDA. And EBITDA tells you what is the free cash flow that this business is generating on an annual basis. The more free cash flow you have, the healthier you are as a business. If you are in a negative uh, EBITDA state, that means you're burning more cash than you're using. So the marketing that you would do in that in that scenario is very different to when you have a ton of EBITDA to work with. So if I'm in an organization that has 5 million in EBITDA every single year, I can go to the CFO and say, this is the time to get more aggressive. And here's how marketing has performed and contributed to that EBITDA. Let's spend more. Whereas if my um, we're not profitable, well, we have to tighten the budget and I have to be more creative with my marketing efforts, right? Similarly, on a cash flow statement side, you could be a profitable business, but still be in a negative cash flow state, depending on what stage of growth you're in. That also determines how much money you can spend where. And depending on what's at your disposal in terms of uh, marketing budget and the campaigns that are working or channels that are working or not, you have to understand that there's not infinite budget to go around. So even if our overall company budget for this year was, let's say, $15 million, and next year, because we grew, we have $17 million at our disposal, there's only net $2 million on top for the whole business. So $2 million more that sales, product, marketing, client services, everybody has to share and split together. And, and so when you, even if you come up with a great marketing idea, or few set of ideas that need, let's say, seven hundred thousand in investment. That's not the that's not the ultimate question. The question is, and it's called an investment committee in larger organizations, and usually it refers to more product management. But overall, for the business, it's an investment committee where the board will say, "Okay, we have two million more dollars to spend. What is the best place to put this money? Should we hire two more account executives? Should we hire five more developers?" Should we invest more into paid media? And, and like, there's probably 10 other things on that list. And so if you as a marketing leader are only thinking about your function, it's you kind of have tunnel vision. You don't understand that because there's finite resources, where else can that money be spent? And this is where marketing leaders lose credibility because if you understand that, oh, hiring two account executives or territory sales reps can help us enter into a new state, a new country, a new new continent, maybe that might be better for us than potentially spending even $100,000 more on Google Ads, let's say. And it, when you bring that understanding, your asks change in terms of what you're asking the board for in terms of your budget, and you're more aligned with the other functions. When If you understand that XYZ is more important to 
to product and ABC is more important to sales and you connect your plans to those, to those plans that those two functions have, your odds of success dramatically increase. And sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'm going to stop there. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah. So just to kind of riff on that, um, a a lot of times I find, and and this was a, a very similar to my situation this year, um, the first thing I felt needed to happen was a reposition. Um, and I actually, um, didn't spend what I initially thought I would. And I, I almost, I, 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 we had a conversation, uh, after, uh, after the first half of the, of the fiscal year. And we, we decided to reallocate because, you know, we weren't ready for, um, to go into, uh, a new market as much as we anticipated for uh, for certain reasons um and i and one of the reasons was i was able to identify that our our cost per acquisition in that new market was very high uh, mm-hmm. and we, we you know it wasn't feasible so um but i was able to have that conversation and you know i i got uh, the budget I needed this year because we had repositioned. Now we're ready to to execute on a lot of our programs. Um, but even uh, I find what the most CFOs, um, a lot of the accounting systems aren't set up to actually um, build out a proper GL for, for marketing budgets. And I could digress on that point for, for uh, yep. probably another podcast episode, but um Credit to my CFO, uh, Linda. Her and I worked on restructuring our, uh, the marketing budget GL, and she she did so. Um, you know, it took her a little bit of time to to kind of uh, jimmy rig a few things, but it helped because now I could actually look at my my spend on the program level and on even to a to a point a channel level within because it actually mapped up to certain geo codes and i was able to now look at that when i when i'm looking at those statements so uh it's helping me make better decisions and it's something that she wasn't accustomed to so i think a lot of marketers um don't don't have the foresight uh, i've never really spent a lot of time listening hearing marketers actually say that uh you know, how they're setting up their GL, how they're setting up their budgets uh, is important. So it's, it's definitely uh, something that most of them probably don't spend enough time on. Yeah, absolutely. That makes, that makes total sense. And um, one of the things that I first said when we, we hired a CFO for the first time on Wild Apricot in 2016, I think. And one of the first things I did with um, his name is Sean and he's now the general manager of Wild Apricot. And we, we, I spent a lot of time with him explaining the entire business model and how the business grows and all the different levers inside of it and our financials were structured to reflect that just so that going forward every domain inside the business or department their accountability was connected to those key metrics that's the ultimate accountability right and it doesn't have to be like you don't want to tie every activity directly to revenue because in many cases it's not possible um, for example, a specific feature released by product management may not, you know, be hard, maybe hard to connect that to revenue. But what you want is you want to build an internal understanding of the um, the growth levers of the business because 
as much as the growth leaders are responsible for growing the company, multiple people inside the organization do contribute to the growth. And so the more people inside understand that, the more likely you are to generate growth. And so finance is just one aspect of that. And then finance becomes a huge communication tool to inform the rest of the organization in terms of how we're going to be accountable to something and and drive towards a specific outcome. There's no question. Um, I mean, I think this is something you and I could talk about all day if we uh, if we had the opportunity, if time allowed. But I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears and we're gonna kind of move into what I would call a, a quick fire round, where I say a statement. And sure. you've got about 60 to 90 seconds to respond. Uh, Shiv, are you ready? I'm so ready. All right. <laughs> what do you believe that others disbelieve? Yeah, I think a big one is what we just touched on, um, which is helping the entire organization understand which direction you're going in. And I don't, I don't know if everybody disagrees with me on this, but a lot of companies do um, that are less transparent. I think transparency breeds understanding. And when you have more understanding, more people can contribute to solving a problem. So I'm a big believer in open book management. Like even for how to SaaS, like I put all the revenue metrics on the table weekly, including with our subcontractors, you know, um, people that aren't fully in the company, because my, my thinking is the more they understand every aspect of the business, the more they can contribute to the growth of it. Um, and that's something I wish would change because in a lot of organizations, there's just this information gap. Executives know something. There's NDAs or, or like this layers of transparency where like the executives might know something and then the CEO will know a little bit more. And then the people below the executives will know far less. And in that kind of a culture only the people that know more can contribute. And so all the weight of growing the organization falls on the shoulders of, of the few instead of everybody. So I think I wish that's something that would change inside these organizations. I couldn't agree more. Next question. What have you changed your mind about lately? Uh, I think with the how to SaaS journey, um, I, I've really doubled down on account-based marketing. And that's not to say that I never believed in it, but more so than ever, I'm able to understand how much value it can bring inside some of these companies where there is such a defined universe of accounts. And I don't think, even if you have, there's, there's a few tools out there that are pr been promoting account-based marketing forever, but in some ways they get people to buy these tools who are not deploying them correctly. Like we do account-based marketing and we don't have any of those tools. Um, it's more about the, the, the art behind it in terms of how you deploy it and get the right people into your pipeline. Um, but I've really changed my mind on that. And I've been thinking a lot more about how that can be deployed at scale uh, because there's tools like Demandbase and Terminus and Triplio and Engageo and all these guys that have been talking about it for a while. But I just, I feel like there's a tactical element to what every, everybody in there preaches there is a whole art, art behind that. And I think it can drive a lot more revenue, even for companies where your total addressable market and number of accounts would be larger. So um, yeah, because I've been more of an inbound guy my, for most of my career, right? And now I'm building a company that needs to do a lot more account-based marketing. And so it's been, it's been illuminating in that sense. We're also, um, we're, we're standing up an account-based 
um, go to market at RentSync. Um, and one of the things I would say to other marketers who are uh, about to do this or, or want to do it is that if you want to brute force your way into the sales org, into your, into your company, it's, it's probably the best way to do it. It's also the most challenging. <laughs> so I'll, just yeah. say, I'll leave it at that. Um, I mean, to close off, um, you know, where, where can people find you on the interweb? Uh, if they're interested in working with how to SaaS, uh, we're a management consulting firm that works with SaaS companies. Uh, they can look up www.howtosass.com uh, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. You just look up Shiv Narayanan and I'll probably come up. Um, or it's easier. I think it's slash IN slash Shiv dash N22. And that's my profile. So I would love to get connected with anybody in this space. So I'll put that in the show notes um, when we uh, when we ship the episode. Shiv, um, this has been a real treat. I've been looking forward to doing this with you for quite some time. Um, I'm always looking forward to your uh, posts on LinkedIn. You're definitely one of the thought leaders in the space. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down and doing this with me, man. Thanks for taking the time. This was great. Thanks, Mitch. <laughs>